Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... The Fall River Cult Murders Satanic Worship Animal Sacrifice Ritual Ceremonies All part of the rise of satanic cults of the late 60s and early 70s. This phenomenon created a satanic panic. The murders of three young women involved in the sex trade in Fall River, Massachusetts, came to be part of this satanic panic and became the most sensational criminal case to come out of the Spindle City since Lizzie Borden. The body of the first victim was found on October 13, 1979. Doreen Levesque, a 17-year-old runaway from New Bedford, was discovered behind the Diamond Vocational High School. Her wrists had been bound with fishing line and there were signs of sexual torture. She had also been stabbed in the head several times and suffered multiple skull fractures. The investigation of the murder fell to the Fall River Major Crime Unit. The last surviving member of that team, retired Detective Alan Sylvia, joins us today on Murder Most Foul. The area that we're talking about where it was really laden with um, prostitution, unfortunately, was about two blocks from the Fall River Police Department, which was always, uh, as I look back at it now, and people say, well, why didn't you do anything to clean that up? Oh, we did. We constantly worked at that. I was, prior to being in major crimes, I was a vice detective and um, spent uh, uh, many, uh, many days uh, rounding up prostitutes, arresting them, and they would go back out on the street. But uh, unfortunately, that was the area. And on um, Friday and Saturday evenings, there were traffic jams, uh, people coming from all all areas of, uh, of the Northeast uh, to pick up a, a young lady. Um, so that was uh, uh, sort of the scene back then. Uh, on, on that early morning, five o'clock, um, uh, I received a call uh, on my beeper. We had no cell phones back then. We had a beeper. My beeper went off around 5.30, 6 o'clock, asking me to go to Diamond Vocational High School where they found the body under the bleachers. Um, I arrived, um, young lady who was, wasn't identified at the time was, um, uh, mostly nude under the bleachers tied with, um, fishing line, her ankles and her hands in front of her face down, uh, her skull and face were uh, smashed with the uh, rocks that were large rocks that were nearby. Um, 
there was very little evidence, physical evidence at the scene. We, uh, of course, uh, went through that area with a fine-tooth comb. We were assisted by the state police uh, detectives uh, from the Bristol County District Attorney's Office. So we seized uh, some of the rocks. Uh, some of those went off to Washington. However, there were no prints uh, uh, that were able to be lifted. Um, that is when we identified, uh, finally identified Doreen Levesque. She was, uh, it took us a few days. She was a young lady, 17 years old, from New Bedford, Mass., which is about 15 miles east of uh, Fall River. And um, she would come to Fall River periodically to work the streets as a prostitute. We learned that she was uh, told by... Uh, a couple of other folks um, who were pimps, uh, Robin Murphy and Carl Drew, uh, not to work the street in Fall River. They wanted that, that trade for themselves. They wanted to control the street. She continued to do that. Um, she was then picked up by them and uh, beaten and um, killed, murdered under the bleachers. It was then that we started, uh, as the investigation went on, is when we started hearing of these names, Carl uh, Drew and Robin Murphy and Karen Marsden, and we started to receive information from others who knew of what occurred under the bleachers and uh, immediately started talking about Satan and cults, something that we had never heard of in the, in the city at that time. We didn't hear anything about a cult, an active cult. Um, however, this took on a life of its own. And um, more and more throughout the two and a half, three years of the investigation, uh, cult remained, uh, Satan remained pretty in, much in the forefront of, of um, what was going on. However, we learned that there was no organized cult. It was no keeping of satanic records or what someone would think of as Anton LaVey and, on the West Coast. It was a self-styled, self-created cult to keep these young ladies who were prostitutes in line. And um, through that intimidation, uh, using... Uh, comments like Satan knows, Satan knows what you're doing. Um, they kept uh, these several young ladies uh, doing what they were supposed to do, not uh, being forefront, uh, coming forefront and discussing with us with any of the issues. So it was a very difficult investigation, as many are. And then um, uh, many months later, several months later there was a second homicide and that second homicide uh, involved uh, the killing of, of Barbara Raposa at uh, an area off of Stevens Street in Fall River and uh, the uh, young lady there uh, was not a prostitute uh, but had been uh, friendly had a, a long time sexual relationship with Andy Maltese, who um, 
Andy Maltese was a strange character. He uh, he was in his uh, he was in his forties uh, and had been uh, having a sexual relationship with Robin Murphy when she was 11, 12 years old. And pretty much the same with um, Barbara Raposa, the second young lady we found, who uh, murdered um, under a tree in the winter at uh, Rusgold uh, Printing uh, off of Stephen Street, as I mentioned. Um, she again was tied um, with a similar line uh, around her ankles and, and wrists. And also, uh, her face and, and the skull had been crushed with, with uh, rocks. Days went by without finding the body. Uh, a, a beagle, a gentleman was walking his beagle, and the dog was licking the frozen corpse. That's how we uh, learned of, of, of the body. It was, body was, the body was rock solid, frozen. We had to... We had to wait a few days for the uh, autopsy to take place, just to thaw. And uh, learned that uh, uh, that was, uh, she had been picked up by Andy Maltese, who was with Bob, uh, was with Robin Murphy. Robin Murphy was a 17 year old who was uh, a pro uh, not only a prostitute, but w was a pimp and controlled many of these young ladies at a very young age, very violent person. Andy Maltese um, had been talking to the state police. He, uh, he sort of placed the state police at a higher level than us. He, uh, he held them in high esteem. So uh, when we, uh, we, we found Andy, uh, Andy decided he'd come in and finally talk to us, but he insisted that he was going to wait until the state police detectives arrived. We told him that we weren't going to let them in. So uh, we informed him of his rights. Andy, come, Andy Maltese came in, and I say that, you know, you, you could travel the streets of Fall River for years and not find anyone dressed how Andy Maltese was dressed when he came in. He had cowboy boots on. He had a, a big belt buckle that said Texas on it, and um, little pearls on on uh, the shirt, snaps on his Western style style shirt, and he had a Bible in his hand, which is a great thing. Except um, I immediately asked, well, you know, what's what's the Bible? And his immediate response was, well, I was with Satan, now I'm not with, now I'm with God, and. Um, Andy uh, was strange in the sense that after informing of his Miranda warnings, he wanted uh, he wanted to talk. And I have I have always said I've investigated over those years uh, about forty homicides, and I have concluded that people who murder want to talk. They want to tell you. They know it's the worst possible thing you can do to a human, and it stays with them. Uh, Andy insisted on talking, insisted, he didn't ask to speak to a lawyer. I, uh, we had Andy for maybe uh, right around the clock, no sleep. Andy uh, just continued to, to bury himself and uh, didn't want to leave.
a nervous Maltese, denied any knowledge of the crime. However, a few days later, he contacted police after receiving details of the murder in a psychic dream. Very specific details. Police played along and brought Maltese to the crime scene, allowing him to describe what he had seen in his dream. It turns out that he was quite the clairvoyant, knowing exactly where the woman's body had been discovered, its positioning, time of death, method of killing, and various other details that were not made public at the time. His psychic testimony was indeed helpful in the investigation, although probably not in the way it was intended. A confused Maltese soon found himself in handcuffs and charged with murder. Andy, close your eyes. You know what I see, Andy? I see, uh, I see you uh, next to Bob Repose's body. And this is when Andy immediately said, well, I had a dream. I was hovering over where her body was. I was hovering there. And where, where is this, Andy? I can take you to it. I can take you to the place. Very, very odd. Uh, obviously, we, we, he, he did take us there. And uh, exactly where her body was found, exactly... Uh, um, he did everything he could not to implicate Robin. And uh, Robin did everything she could to bury Andy. He, he did that because he had been having a, a sexual relationship with, with Robin when, when she was 11. He feared that having been charged in the 19, late 1950s with uh, rape. So he feared uh, what she could do to him, as everyone else on the street feared what Robin could do. Um, so uh, he tried to, as much as he could, to keep Robin out of it. When all the time, uh, it's in my opinion, having been to lived through that and covered every inch of it, Robin not only was present for the homicide, but actually committed the homicide. She is the one who used this. Uh, Andy uh, had this bag of tricks that he had in his, his vehicle. And uh, it was uh, you know, dildos and whips and, and handcuffs. And uh, Robin used, uh, Robin was a lesbian. Robin used uh, the contents of the bag of trip, tricks on Barbara and murdered her outside of the vehicle. Andy, and knowing Andy's temperament, uh, Andy was not a vicious man. He was a little uh, strange in a number of ways, but he was not vicious, and you couldn't see any of that, any of that in him. Um, Robin, of course, testified against Andy, and Andy um, gets a second-degree murder, and uh, later dies uh, due to a stroke in Bridgewater State Prison. So uh, Robin turned the state's evidence against uh, Andy Maltese. 
and uh, really walk Scott clean. Andy could have saved himself by, by implicating uh, Robin, but didn't. And she, of course, did that to him. So, um, without physical evidence, we have Robin at the scene because so many people put her at the scene of the bleaches, under the bleaches. Uh, we have a very similar uh, homicide with regard to fishing line and... and, and uh, bludgeoned with stones uh, at Rusco Printing. Robin again at the scene. And then um, last but not least is Karen Marsden. Now Karen Marsden was um, the weakest of all. She was always very quiet. Never wanted to look at any of us investigators. I'd see Robin. She would do anything not to even look in my direction. Her fear was that she was going to be uh, interrogated in some way or, or implicated as being a, a part of the homicide. Um, people who knew her before the uh, Diamond Vocational uh, Bleachers homicide of Doreen Levesque said that she completely changed after that homicide, uh, socially and psychologically. Robin... This was Robin's lover, Karen. And Robin knew that Karen was the weak link. That if she ever did talk, that would be the nail in the coffin, so to speak, for Robin and whoever else was there. Carl Drew. Um, Karen had told others that Robin and Carl were there. And of course that she was there under the bleaches. Well, uh, finally, we had an opportunity to uh, speak with Cameron. It was uh, maybe six or seven o'clock in the evening. Detective Joquin and I were uh, was, were asked to meet Carol Fletcher's sister on County Street in an apartment there. And um, the plan was is that Karen was going to come in. This was all set up by Carol Fletcher who was jealous of the relationship between Robin and, and, and Karen. She sets up the meeting. Of course, Karen comes to the door and sees us and immediately starts to scream, scream, falls to, to her knees. Um, we started talking with Karen. Uh, at first it was very difficult, but uh, she uh, did everything but put Carl and Robin under the bleachers, but told us where Carl had taken her to the show where he would kill people and to, the, to the Freetown State Forest and uh, how they were going, how Satan was going to kill her son. She had a very young son, uh, probably around two years old then, JJ. And Satan was going to kill her son and uh, they knew that she was talking Right now, they knew she was talking to the police. And we said, well, how, how are they going to know? They don't know. Well, of course, Karen, Carol Fletcher couldn't wait to go to Robin and tell Robin that Karen is with 
me and would joke them. And uh, we, uh, she of course, Karen was definitely, definitely feared her life and uh, the life of her son. I called the chief of police uh, probably at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock that night while we were with Karen and asked him for his permission to place her in protective custody. We had the hotel in, in Dartmouth that we would use on occasion for that purpose. And um, we offered that to her, she refused. She wanted to go to uh, St. Mary's Cathedral on uh, 2nd and Rodman. Uh, we drove her there. Uh, she went to the door, rang the bell, the priest opened the door, and we drove away. Um, she was killed about four hours after that. This might be a good time to introduce Carl Drew to the story. Carl Drew um, was a pimp, very violent, uh, had a uh, very poor relationship with Robin. Uh, of course, Robin was much younger than him. Robin uh, uh, wanted to control the streets uh, that was interfering with Carl. And... Uh, they uh, they hated each other, um, and uh, so there was some reason, uh, some benefit to Robin turning on Carl. Uh, uh, they had had somewhat of a, a, a rocky relationship with a few incidents of violence with, to each other, and uh, but. Uh, I'll say it now, uh, Robin masterminded every one of these homicides. And, and in retrospect, when you look at this, um, Robin testified against Carl, uh, a deal given to her by the district attorney at the time, who I thought really did a poor job. And I had issues with him as well. Um, she testified against Carl Drew for the... Uh, for a first degree murder bid and uh, she took a second degree because she placed herself at the scene where Karen was murdered actually was told to to slit the neck of Karen with a knife by Carl and uh, she did that she admitted to that according to her own statements Murphy was made to drag Marston from the car and pull out her hair. This was followed by a ritual stoning by Drew, Murphy, Fletcher, and Carl Davis. Drew then cut off one of Marston's fingers, quote, to make her feel pain, unquote, and broke her neck with his bare hands. While in a trance-like state and under the direction of Drew, Murphy followed up by slitting Marston's throat with a knife that was handed to her by Davis. The two men then tore the girl's head off and kicked it around the woods. The frenzied post-mortem defilement 
would reach its climax as homage was paid to Satan. Drew carved an X into Marsden's torso and began to speak in tongues, offering her soul to the Dark Lord. He then dipped his thumb in her blood and made an X on Murphy's forehead. To break one final moral taboo, Murphy was made to perform oral sex on the headless cadaver before it was dumped in the woods, doused in gasoline, and burned to ashes. At her parole hearing, Robin Murphy recanted all these details of the murder of Karen Marsden. There was a lot of resistance between the district attorney's office and the local police department, our department. They would, uh, the, the district attorney always looked upon a local police, us, as being inferior. Uh, he was an arrogant son of a gun, that Ron Pino. He's since passed, God bless his soul. But um, he, uh, he didn't treat us very well and, and looked upon us as, uh, you know, that we didn't know what we were doing, except we knew the streets better than anybody. If there was a state police investigator who lived in Brockton or lived in, uh, you know, down the Cape and assigned to this office, he knew nothing of the streets in Fall River. We lived the streets in Fall River. So they we, it, it actually came to a point where we would tell witnesses, don't talk to them. So they, would, they weren't forthright in giving us information. We would ask, well, how'd you make out with that? They wouldn't give us anything. But they expected us to. So we didn't do that. Uh, and we were instructed by our commanders not to do it. So there was a lot of tension there. Uh, not personally toward the actual uh, state police investigators. Because we had a good relationship with them. But there was a lot of tension between the district attorney and our office that should have never took place. Robin went to uh, the district attorney and complained that we were harassing her, that we were following her. Well, that's our job. Of course we were following her. She was paranoid because she knew what she did. We were on it. Uh, we were doing a number of things to always look and see where she was. Ron Peter decided to take her and another lesbian friend and send them to Texas on the Commonwealth dime, uh, paid for their trip, paid for their lodging in Texas, because all at, at that time, she, he needed her to testify against uh, Carl Drew on the Bleachers case. Andy Maltese. Okay? That was the plan. While I was a frequent uh, visitor at Sunny Spotter's apartment at Harbor Terrace, where they all hung, we would always go there. And uh, there was a telephone call. It was from Robin. And I asked Sonny if I could listen. She allowed me to. And Robin said, they'll never figure out it was me regarding Karen because I did the same thing Lizzie Borden did. I took off all my clothes. Well, of course, I reduced that to a report. And finally, uh, at a special meeting that took place at the district attorney's office. Um, I presented that report. My commander was present. Uh, and uh, 
that opened Pandora's box. Uh, he immediately, of course, had to send for her and her girlfriend from Texas. Uh, he wasn't happy about that. The district attorney wasn't happy about that because uh, uh, it, it just showed them that because it was information that he couldn't get. Um, and that t turned the tables. But he was, uh, the district attorney was too eager to, to uh, use uh, Robin when uh, he knew she was a psychopath to uh, be the main witness uh, for the, uh, you know, the first degree murder charge against Carl Drew. And uh, he had charged uh, Carl with the homicide of Doreen Lebeck, but then dropped those charges. So, uh, you know, now we look at this and, uh, you know, we flash forward um, many years later. Carl, of course, uh, comes uh, wants a, um, a, a an appeal. He, 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 he was actually had two appeals. I went to those appeals over the years, and the judge determined that there was not enough grounds for a new trial. And now that those have been exhausted, Kyle remains in jail for the rest of his natural life. As I said, Carl Drew shouldn't have, shouldn't have been doing a first-degree murder. He should have been doing a, a second degree of being present right. at the homicide for Doreen Lebeck. Now, uh, Robin, of course, has changed her story several times. Uh, and it's, now, it, who do you believe? Most of, the, most of the investigators are dead. There's only a few of us left. District attorney's gone. Judge is gone, so everyone who heard the case is gone. Um, you know, public opinion now is that you know Carl Drew should not be spending the remainder of his life uh, incarcerated, uh, and that Robin should. Now, Robin was out, did get parole. She violated her parole, and was returned. Uh, the other strange thing about that is while Robin is incarcerated in Framingham State Prison, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, she, in a letter, uh, threatened my life. Uh, she had said in the letter that as soon as she was released, she was going to kill me. So uh, I went up to testify in 2012 um, that she remained incarcerated. Well, I don't know if that helped, but uh, she's still incarcerated and she's remained there. Now she's up for parole in 2022. You know, I've testified that she should not be in society. She's, uh, you know, she, she's, I mean, violated parole even when she did, was out and uh, she's got a violent past and someone who would, uh, I think, would do that again. Uh, so we'll have to see what happens in 2022, but I know I'm going to be notified and I'm going to go up to testify to keep her there. There are some who say the Fall River cult never really existed. It was simply a product of the satanic panic era.
made up entirely by the police and tabloid media to sensationalize the grisly slayings of three young prostitutes who may or may not have dabbled in the occult and connect them in a way that would capture the public's imagination. Given the social climate of the time, these claims are not exactly out of the realm of possibility. Of course, throughout the trial, there was lots of sensational comments about Satan and cults. Uh, again, in all reality, uh, no such animal at all. It was uh, just words used to keep people in line. Uh, the, uh, the series that was uh, televised uh, was very sensational about snakes and, and, and dancing young ladies with no clothes on. I didn't see any of that. It didn't depict the city as, as being a, a very nice place. I think the, the series starts off with, uh, if you're from Fall River, you spent time in jail. <laughs> a while, I, I mean, he could have said, if you're from Fall River, uh, you you must know someone who spent time in jail. So, as we all know, somebody who spent time in jail. So, uh, but that wasn't very nice. As a matter of fact, the local newspaper made a big deal about that. So, uh, uh, I, I don't believe any of that existed. This was uh, self-styled, self-created, um, which still made it very scary for those people who were involved and. Uh, a very dark period of time in our community. And Although details of satanic worship would come up repeatedly throughout the trials, the prosecution decided it would only complicate the proceedings if they explicitly connected the three murders to a broader conspiracy. Detective Alan Sylvia was an eyewitness to more than one of these satanic ceremonies. You know, I, I never knew why they, we would go there. We would go there because they didn't tell us not, not to. Uh, they wanted us there in some ways. They, they thought they could get information from us. Uh, as I say, I knew we, we knew we could get information from them. So we would drink with them. We would um, uh, bring uh, uh, some cannabis there on occasion because uh you know that became it that became an issue at the one at the at Carl Drew's trial because that was stated that we brought marijuana but uh, we were we were investigating homicide we were investigating marijuana uh we didn't care what they did as long as we found out uh, who was killing who uh, at that time of course you can imagine we didn't know who was next and uh so there were uh, there was a there was a meeting where satan was brought up and uh, they were actually hailing satan um, which was uh, which was a little bizarre. Robin was uh, talking with Karen in the bedroom. I didn't know it was Robin and Karen in the bedroom, but uh, I heard Karen's voice. I was in the kitchen. Uh, this is a, like a two-bedroom apartment back then. And uh, I heard this other very strange voice. It wasn't a... It didn't seem to me like a young lady's voice at all. Even controlled, like lowering yeah, or yeah. being in it. No. It just did not sound right. No. And uh, uh, very vicious. And and uh, I had heard Robin speak before, but had not seen who was in that room. I thought there was someone else in there. Uh, it, it was just uh, the way she was uh, 
speaking with Robin, uh, with Karen, who she totally manipulated, was it was another voice, uh, which uh, now in, in retrospect was very very scary. When you think, uh, you know, you look at multi personality disorder, or, or how can someone uh, be totally, absolutely, totally different? You know, Robin came across when she went to trial with a little cross on her, on her uh, uh, necklace and, and dressed uh, with her long hair, dressed like she was a choir girl, uh, when she was uh, one of the most vicious people I had ever come across. So there's a lot, a lot of this case. It, uh, look, after 40 years, doesn't go away. It, it, it still lingers on. Uh, I, I'm not sure where it goes next. You know, talked about all the great people who've come from Fall River. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's going it, to. It, you know, I always said it, this this case made Lizzie Borden look like you know a minor case. Uh, this these three homicides really. Um, go beyond Lizzie Borden uh, and uh, it changed it changed lives it changed it changed my life Well, I, I, I do want to again uh, thank Representative Alan Sylvia for his time today uh, talking about a very um, strange case, a very sad case. Um, at times we do, we do um, forget that these were human beings um, and had families and whatnot, and yet because of their quote-unquote their trade, um, we think of them less and we shouldn't. So. Um, Again, I appreciate your, both your work as a representative and I appreciate your, your former work as a police officer. This is not an easy time. Uh, you're retired from that now, but it's not an easy time for police anywhere. So I respect your work in, in both venues and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Take care. If you enjoy today's segment, if you enjoy the program, I hope you'll tell your friends. It can be downloaded from all the popular podcast platforms, or you can link to it on my website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. There you can leave me an email with comments or suggestions. So until next time, stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.